Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. A poem. Two frogs fell into a can of cream, or so I've heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, croaked number one. Tis fate. No helps around. Goodbye, my friends. Goodbye, sad world. And weeping still, he drowned. But number two of Turner stuff dog paddled in surprise. The while he wiped his creamy face and dried his creamy eyes. I'll swim a while at least, he said. Or so I've heard he said. It really wouldn't help the world if one more frog was dead. An hour or two he kicked and swam. Not once he stopped to mutter, but kicked and kicked and swam and kicked, then hopped out by a butter. (laughs) Glad to be here this morning for our... um, Time of, of Bible teaching and Bible ministry. The subject is perseverance in the Christian life. Can you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10? Hebrews, chapter 10. We're going to begin from verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us, through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Verse 32, remember those earlier days, after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, because you knew that you had yourselves, you had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come. And will not delay. 
but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. May the Lord help us to understand his word. John Newton, in that hymn, Amazing Grace, wrote these words. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That's remarkable confidence, isn't it? I want you to put up your hands if you know somebody who started out as a believer and is no longer walking with Christ right now. That is almost all of you. It's one of the most tragic and distressing things in the Christian life. The people with whom we have prayed, with whom we've been involved in evangelism, people who perhaps even have helped us spiritually, are no longer continuing in the Christian life. I'm getting terrible problems with these things that I wave my arms about. It's the same in the first century. Hebrews 10, verse 25, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. The one who wrote this particular letter to the Hebrews was writing at a time when persecution was again gathering. There had come waves of persecution on the church and a number of the early leaders had been put to death, had been put in prison, wiped out, and now there was a new storm gathering. It was all returning. And he's going to write of the danger of losing your confidence in verse 35. He will talk of the danger of shrinking back in verse 38. Over in chapter 12 in the third verse, He will talk about those who grow weary and lose heart. I can think of people who have been involved in this conference as we've held it from year to year. Some who were even involved in the early thinking right at the very beginning which brought this conference into being. Who are no longer apparently keeping moving on with Christ. Now what is it that causes people to give up the faith, at least practically and publicly for a time like this. I think it's true, even in our day, that some do quit through persecution. As was the danger facing these Hebrews. Certainly it has been the case down through the centuries. There's the account written of uh, an Italian lawyer called Francis Sira, who was converted at the time of the Reformation in Italy, time of great spiritual revival and renewal, and this man came plainly and publicly to Christ. He lived in a town called Cittadella in the province of Venice, and there was dragged before the Inquisition. And eventually, having been brutally treated and tortured, this man, Francis Sira, was forced to publicly recant. He died later that year, 1548, of an utterly broken heart. He became convinced 
that he had committed the unpardonable sin. His story was written in his autobiography. If you read something like John Bunyan, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Bunyan tells of the impact of Sirah's testimony on his own early spiritual struggles. It sent him into an appalling depression. A man who had been forced to recant the faith through persecution. I suspect, however, that persecution down through the years has more normally caused the opposite. It has caused the faith to grow. It's caused someone in the end to become stronger. There was a man who went to the Lausanne uh, Congress in Manila in the Philippines. He had been for some time the only believer in the Comoros Islands in the Indian Ocean. And he told at the Lausanne Congress of his imprisonment for his faith. There as the only believer he was forced into a cell that was too small even to sit down in. And after three months in that cell, he was brought out uh, for trial. Those islands, maybe you know, are, were then anyway 100% Muslim. And he was given at his trial, very speedily, the choice of three sentences. He could choose himself which one he was to suffer. Either immediate execution. Or lifelong imprisonment. Or exile never to return. He thought of his wife. He thought of his eight children. I wonder what you would have done. There in the courtroom, this man drops to his knees and in front of everybody as they watched silently waiting to see what he would choose, he cried out, Jesus, please show me the right answer. And the court erupted in confusion. And the judge, when he had gained uh, the quiet of the court again, declared, this man is insane, release him at once. <laughs> at the time of his report to that uh, Congress on World Evangelism in 1989, there were already 107 others in that village who had come to Christ. Persecution has come in waves upon the church ever since the earliest days. It does indeed cause some to fall away from the faith. I suspect, however, that far more drop away either through boredom or through disobedience or through some of the things that Jesus points out in, for instance, the parable of the sower. I'm not going to read it to you, but you know it. The story of the man who went out to sow the seed of God's word. This is a story that Jesus told to his own disciples, those who would be involved in scattering the seed of the word of God. They'd be involved in the apostolic work of laying foundations in other people's lives. A work of seeing the church founded in country after country. And Jesus told this story of the parable of the sower precisely so that people would that the disciples would understand people's reactions to the word of God as they preached it. 
And the question he reveals to us has far more to do with the condition of our own hearts. You know about those where the seed lands on the pathway. Leave them aside for a moment. Secondly, those in whom Jesus says, Luke 8 verse 13, there is, very simple, no root. This is how he puts it, verse 13 of Luke 8. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Very striking. Jesus is warning his apostles of a danger sign to look out for in the experience and the testimony of young Christians. The danger sign is joy. Just joy. Nothing else but joy. They receive the word immediately with joy. Very striking because it is not what we would expect. We would think if someone was converted, they ought to jolly well be delighted at at the message of forgiveness and eternal life and so on. Jesus says if somebody hears the gospel and they don't show any signs of regret or grief at the way they have lived, at their long years of being an enemy of God, and how their own sin has taken Christ to such extreme measures for their salvation. Simply joy at the wonderful experience of freedom now and eternal life. They have discovered a God who, in the end, they expect to be no more probably than just a fairy godmother. All is not well, said Jesus. The time of testing will come. Matthew and Mark put it like this. Trouble or persecution will come because of the word that they have claimed to believe. And if trouble and persecution and suffering have no place in their understanding of the gospel, those people will wither away when the time of testing comes. Someone may well fall away because the foundations have not been laid right. Jesus goes on in the next verse. Not a question of no root. But now, no room in their lives for the word of God after a while. The seed that fell among thorns, said Jesus, stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures. And they do not mature. This is something not apparent at the start. This is something that emerges after the mission is over. After you have shared the gospel and maybe you don't see them so much any longer. As they go on their way. This is something that may emerge after years. Many years even in Christian ministry. Sometimes it is our own Christian service and ministry. That is our number one hindrance to our own progress in spiritual things. The job that we have actually prevents us from maturing, as Christ put it. Riches and worries and the cares of this life can affect all different levels of society. I was listening just a night or two ago to Michael Caine on the radio, driving along somewhere, I can't remember, I switched it on, and uh, Michael was saying that when he became uh, 
became wealthy. It brought a great deal into his life. It took away all his worries and fears. Michael Cain has been deceived by the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus himself said, that wealth will pretend to you that now you are free. Now you can be happy. Now all your worries are gone. Now you can have more time with your family. Now you'll be able to get yourself better organized. And Jesus said, it's all lies. Wealth does not accomplish that. He's warning here of people who begin apparently well, but they stop pressing on because eventually the word of God, the voice of God is crowded out by possessions or by position. Not by persecution, but by other things that gradually fill up our lives and make it impossible for us to give time to God's word. No root. No room. One more, before we come back to Hebrews, in order to keep the R's and help you with your notes. And a very strange one, this. No rules in their life. Oh, rules. <gasps> rules, don't talk to me of rules. I'm a modern Christian. I'm a 1990s evangelical. I've heard the gospel and I've been told it's all about relationship and not about rules and regulations. And that in one sense is true and I've preached it many times. But listen how Paul speaks in his letters to Timothy. Because if you read through 1 and 2 Timothy, you will find that he names, he names a number of his early friends who were believers who started out well and who are no longer going on with God. 1 Timothy 1.19 He speaks of holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their own faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. 1 Timothy 1.19 2 Timothy 2.16-18 Avoid, says Paul, godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene among whom are Hymenaeus, whether it's the same one or another one, I don't know, and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. You get it? Shipwreck, wandering away, drift, no direction. They've become careless about their conscience. They ignore the currents and the winds which blow, and they make a shipwreck of their own lives. They ignore the road and get lost. Let's come back to Hebrews chapter 10. How does the writer here make his appeal? Three urgent lessons to help you run well. Keep moving. The first is this. Remember. Remember. Verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest, in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Remember those days? This is a constant theme in the Bible. Remember. Take steps to remember. 
Do what will help you to remember. Remember your creator. Now, in the days of your youth, count your blessings. Remember the goodness of God. Say over to yourself those many things that God has done for you. Remember your own story. The people of Israel in Deuteronomy 5 were told to take, because they were no longer slaves, they were to live life differently from when they had been in slavery in Egypt. They were now to spend their time differently. In the Ten Commandments, God has put in one about the way we use time. And he says you are to spend one-seventh of your week remembering how God has brought you from your previous experience to your present journey. Remember. And at the beginning of the new covenant life, Jesus says to his disciples as he gathers them around and pours out wine and breaks bread, he says, now do this whenever you do it, as often as you do it, in remembrance of me. What aids do you have to your own spiritual memory? Do you set aside certain days to recall the goodness of God to you? Do you perhaps have a notebook where you write down those scriptures or insights or lessons that God has given you? Sometimes, you know, just a simple notebook can act uh, as a kind of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation of your faith. You know, you get discouraged, you get down about something, go through times of dryness and weariness, Prayer is not being answered, or so it seems to you. The mother of Augustine, you know, I think about the 4th century in North Africa, heard from her son that he was wanting to go away to Italy. She thought Italy was a terrible place for a decent, upright son to go. She spent a whole night in prayer that Augustine would not go. She wanted him to stay in North Africa where there were Christians, where he would get converted. And while she was still in prayer, he went. She came out from her room, having spent the night in prayer alone with God, and found in the morning he'd gone. And he got converted in Italy. Milan. God took the thing that she was asking for, saw through to the heart the kernel of it, and gave her what she asked. Sometimes, you know, when we're in the battle and in the turmoil, we don't see how things are going to work out. We can get very discouraged. A well-known novelist this century, Somerset Maugham, wrote a book called Of Human Bondage. It's partly autobiographical. Many of you may have read it. He talks in there about uh, his hero in the book, who's a young boy called Philip, who's at boarding school. has a club foot. And he's been taught the verses of Scripture, and there are many of them, that say, if you ask in faith, if you ask in Jesus' name, if you ask believing, you will have what you ask. The great problem with unanswered prayer is the sheer explicitness of Jesus' promises. If Jesus had said, well, you can ask, and we'll weigh it up in heaven, and on balance we'll, we'll give you what's good for you from time to time, I'd have had no problem with that. It is when Jesus says, you ask, you will receive. That causes me the problem. And this young man, Philip, so desperately wanted his club foot to be healed. So that when it came to time in the gym at school, he wouldn't have to go through all that torture of trying to 
change without the boys seeing and laughing. So he could then run in the sports races at school, that he, he wouldn't have to be jeered at and made to stand on the side. Pray desperately one night. Somerset Maugham recounts how he, he peeled back the carpet so that he could actually kneel on the wooden floor. He then thought it might be a little bit more holy if he took all his clothes off and prayed in nakedness before God. So he did that. He climbed into bed so full of trust and joy that his foot was going to be better in the morning. He'd go back to school a new man. And Morm describes how in the morning when he woke up, he put his foot down, his hand down and felt his foot. He was pretty quiet when he came down to breakfast that day. Same as ever. One of the things that caused Somerset Maugham, with his Christian upbringing, to become a godless and atheist novelist. Bertrand Russell, in his book about why he refused to become a Christian, said that one of the great reasons one of the great reasons why he refused to become a Christian was the problem of unanswered prayer. There are times when we don't understand what God is doing, and to have a record then of the things that God has said to you, the promises that he has given you, your experience with him. To see that actually the people who say this kind of thing in the New Testament, people like Paul, people like Jesus, the way they pray is actually very different from the way we pray. Have you ever noticed how the recorded prayers of Jesus and Paul ask for very different things from the kind of things that we pray? Read over some of Paul's prayers for yourself. Remember, says the epistle to the Hebrews, remember your spiritual experience. He actually tells us three things to remember. Your previous experience of deliverance. He congratulates them on how well they've done in the past. Remember, in the earlier days after you received the light, you stood your ground. You visited those in prison. Remember that. Verse 35, remember that your reward is coming. That is a tremendous thing to remember that Christ is coming back with his reward. You imagine. I don't know whether you ever do. Do you get taken round or do you go round stately homes from time to time? On a wet Saturday. When there's nothing better to do. When England aren't playing France in the Grand Slam Decider. Oh, the sacrifice some of you have made just to come here today. And if I see some of you this afternoon, you know, with your hand over one ear consistently. I used to be a school teacher. I know how people used to listen to the test match all the way through long, boring English lessons. I'll know what's going on. Give me a good week when England get into the league. Imagine you're being shown around a stately home. And you see the, you know, the splendid carpet given by the Shah of Iran, and you see the, the gardens laid out by Capability Brown and whatever, and you finish the whole blinking tour, and you eventually go to the little coffee shop. And there, lo and behold, is the very lady of the manor herself, Lady Rowena Shufflebottom, handing out the scones with her own fair hand, and you get chatting with her. And you show great interest in this stately home that you've just looked around. And she said, oh, did you like it? Well, let me call my husband. He's out in the potting shed somewhere. 
and he'll show you his collection of ancient Bentleys. And so you get taken in and look round the Bentleys. But at the end of the day, you will go home. What an amazing thing it would be if Lord and Lady Shufflebottom said, now, would you care to become part of our family? To become part owner of all this? We'd like to share it with you forever. It never happens, does it? One day, you know, can you not imagine God himself? You've gone to be with him, saying, just come with me a while. I'd like to show you a couple of new galaxies I've kept hidden. (laughs) I've kept them under the dust sheet so that the astronomers couldn't see them. (laughs) And then you see whole unimaginable legions of angels all lined up waiting to do the bidding of the Lord. You see this magnificent city which Scripture says has been prepared for you. I want to share it with you, he says. This is better than going around Windsor Castle. It is not only this universe, but the next as well. You find difficulty sometimes keeping going. The writer of the Hebrew says, not only remember how well you did in those earlier days, but remember the future as well as the past. Remember what a great reward there is lined up for you in the future. Joint heirs of all that, not only that, we become partakers of the very life of God himself. Verse 37. Remember, Not only your previous experience and God's goodness to you and the reward that is coming, but remember, verse 37, that the one who gave all these promises is coming. He will come and he will not delay. Christ's return is mentioned again and again in the book of Hebrews. End of chapter 9. Let me read just a few verses. Christ was sacrificed once, verse 28, to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 10.25, the second half. Let us encourage one another, as I'm trying to do now, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And now here in verse 37. He who is coming will come and will not delay. Psalm 130, in verses 5 and 6, speaks of the one who who waits for God. You get in the scriptures sometimes that that cry which breaks out from the hearts, How long, O Lord? It comes in the Psalms, it comes in, in Isaiah 6, it comes in the prophets. How long, O Lord, must we wait? While there is war, while there is child abuse, while there is so much unhappiness in our world, how long? And the psalmist in 130 in those verses says that waiting for the Lord is like waiting for the dawn. You wait for the dawn, you know two things. One, you cannot hurry it up. No amount of agonizing is going to make it come any quicker. Two, it will surely come. He who is coming will come and will not delay. So let's remember. Secondly, 
In verse 35, the writer says, Don't throw away your confidence. What is he talking about? Don't throw away your boldness. Now, boldness is a very good thing in a Christian. And uh, we see sometimes the early Christians praying for more boldness. I think sometimes people with uh, a certain kind of brash boldness can be an absolute pain in the neck. Or wherever you get your paint. A kind of uh, bull in a china shop, insensitive boldness can be an appalling thing. I can remember once when I was a little uh, choir boy. Can you imagine? Dressed up in all the fine robes. And I went, uh, Christmas time I think it was, with the rest of the choir, little row of us, to sing in an old people's home. Oh, we were angelic. <laughs> there were these old people sitting around and we filed in and we began to sing once in Royal David City. And suddenly the door at the back of this room crashed open and a woman came in in a wheelchair. Crashed through the... You know, that's how she would get the doors open. She'd run at full tilt at the door. Bang! And, and through she came and she wheeled herself, bulging eyes, you know, through to the front of the meeting and parked her wheelchair on the foot of the woman next to her. Says the woman. Whereupon the woman in the wheelchair said, Shh, shh, shh. singing. Get off me foot, you're on me foot. Shh, be quiet, be quiet. Singing. Once in royal day. Get off me foot. And, and eventually after this, we, we were helpless. The boy just sort of collapsed through the whole song came to an So that kind of boldness, hmm, get to the front, bang, really was upsetting. And sometimes our triumphalism can be very upsetting to people who are sensitive about this problem of unanswered prayer and things not working out as they would hope. What is the writer saying? Don't throw away your boldness, your confidence. What confidence? Well, if you look back at verse 19, where we started reading, it is the boldness of coming regularly into the very presence of God himself. Therefore, brothers... Therefore, after all the previous ten and a half chapters, we have confidence. We can come just as we are. What a difference the new covenant makes. The old Jews, could they go into the very presence of God? No, they couldn't. Members from eleven of the twelve tribes could never go. Just from one tribe. But not anybody from, from the one tribe. Only one man. And not any day of the year, only one day a year. The entire Jewish system said, keep back. You can't come any closer. One man of one tribe on one day a year would go for five minutes into the most holy place. And then come scuffling out, glad to be still alive. They actually used to tie a rope round his, his waist. Just in case God should turn savage, they could drag him back out quickly. And after all these chapters in Hebrews, to every single one of you here today, considering your future, considering this summer, considering your ministry, many puzzles and confusions, don't you ever throw away that boldness that God has granted that you may come regularly yourself, though you be the youngest believer just converted last night, 
come into the very presence of God himself and there stand with others before the throne of God. Never lose that confidence. Learn there to pray as the apostles and as Jesus prayed. Remember, don't shrink back and lose your confidence. And thirdly, finally, live by faith, says verse 38. My righteous one will live by faith. What does that mean? Faith in what God has said and done for us. I find this to be the greatest motivation in my own keeping continuing in the Christian life. Listen to these words from John chapter 10. My sheep, said Jesus, listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What utter certainty. There's absolutely no chink in those verses for any doubt or uncertainty at all, is there? One absolute statement after another. So Paul could say in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it right through to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now sure, this faith has to be tested. Scripture itself says it has to be tested. Peter speaks of his own experience of testing. In James 1 verses 3 and 4, the testing of your faith develops the character of perseverance in you. Remember Jesus saying, seed where there's no root, when the time, the expected, the planned, the necessary, the inevitable time of testing comes, well, they fall away, they're not properly rooted. James says perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James 1 verses 3 and 4. The testing actually makes you mature. It makes you ready for those galaxies. It makes you ready for seeing those angels to partake with God in the running of the entire universe. Peter is the great example, isn't he, in the New Testament of being rescued from an apparent and almost collapse of his faith. Do you remember just before the cross? Peter huddled over a little fire in the courtyard of the high priest's house. An hour or two before he'd taken up a sword. Thought it was best. Whipped out a sword in order to defend the Messiah. And had been told off. Told to put it back. Had done a bit of damage with it. Told it to put it, put it back in its sheath. And now as he sits with those folk round that fire, because he hasn't paid much attention to the words of Christ to him recently, he starts to deny the Lord. He deserts him in his heart. He runs away eventually, out into the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus had seen this coming. And had prayed for him 
that even in this experience, his faith would not fail. And I don't believe for a moment it did. I don't think that anything Jesus prays for does not in fact come to pass. What a glimpse of that high priestly ministry that is going to see every one of us through to the end of our Christian life. You may become in in days ahead a, a mightier evangelist than Billy Graham. You may become a better, more internationally known Bible teacher than John Stott himself. Or any of your other great heroes. The thing that is going to get you through to glory is going to be the praying of Jesus over your faith even as he prayed for this apostle Peter. And then you remember the Lord came back, didn't he? And made another little fire. And sat Peter down beside it. And fed him. And then drew out of Peter's heart, not denials, but declarations of love. Do you love me, Peter? As we sit by this fire, in the company of others who claim to be believers, do you love me? Yes, said Peter. I love you. And Jesus went on pressing it until Peter was hurt. Do you remember? At the third request. Does your Jesus ever hurt you? Do you have a Christ? Do you follow a Christ who is capable of hurting you? It says quite plainly in scripture, it's John who wrote it, about his friend Peter, that Peter was hurt by something that Christ asked him. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Peter, you take up the sword to defend me. Don't do it. We fight with other weapons. And he let Peter feel the nick of the blade of the very word of God. It hurt him. It cut him. He began to understand that a new weapon was being put in his hand. This sheep that had wandered off is finding Jesus restoring his soul, making him sit down beside still waters. The Galilee is still now. Starting to lead him in the paths of righteousness, he will go through the valley of the shadow of death. He's putting in his hand a different sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so when Peter stands up, only a few weeks later on the day of Pentecost, and preaches that incredible sermon. What does the scripture say? They were cut to the heart. Thousands of them. Oh, Peter started to understand. That it is the word of God that we're to fight with. It takes great faith to believe that. But my righteous will live by faith. I sense in many quarters a withering away of faith in the word of God. Don't do it. People lose their nerve about scripture and the power of the gospel. And they will use almost anything else apart from that one weapon that God has put into our hands. And here we read Jesus actually training Peter in the use of that weapon. There was a man some years ago called Wang Ming Dao in China. He was born in 1900 in Beijing the time of the Boxer Rebellion. 
During the Japanese occupation of his part of China, there were formidable threats and persecutions against the believers. So what did he do? He bought a coffin. He bought his own coffin and stood it up in his room. That'd be interesting. At college, university, at home, you have your coffin standing in your room. That'd be a talking point, wouldn't it, for friends? He was imprisoned by the communists on August the 8th, 1955, and then followed 23 years of suffering. He had opposed, you see, the uh, communist three-self-patriotic movement for denying the gospel, and he went through brainwashing. The year after he was imprisoned, in 1956, he broke. He agreed to sign a confession. Just like that man Francis Sira. And on the 30th of September 1956, Wang Mingdao was taken to a large church to read out his confession. Later, he publicly withdrew it and was sent back to prison for another 20 years. As he reflected on that experience, he said simply this, I was like Peter, not like Judas. May the Lord help us to press on by his grace, with heaven and the reward, the word of God set fully in view. Paul said, I forget the things that are behind, my failures, my weaknesses. I stretch forward for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May the Lord help us from this conference, all without exception, to be moving day by day, as we see the Lord's return getting closer and closer, moving closer to Christ, closer to glory, closer to those great future responsibilities the Lord will have for us. Let's thank the Lord for his word. Father God, we thank you for the experience, often tough, brutal experience of your people that they went through, that they might comfort others. Thank you for this letter to the Hebrews, and for the great comfort it's been to thousands down through the years. And Lord, if some of those earlier things we diagnose, reasons why people fall away, are, are beginning to be true in our own hearts, we do thank you for the nick of your word this morning. And for the encouragement you give us to press on. Come Lord, soon we pray. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.